It's a uh, snowy day, maybe icy day is a better description, but uh, the Word of God is alive and powerful. So we are here, and I'm thankful that you're, you've joined us. This is, of course, as Hal expresses, this is the National Capital Bible Church, and welcome to our uh, Sunday service. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me... Though he die, yet shall he live. But he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. We always take a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation, confession of sins, and relaxing, focusing on uh, the, uh, the worship service so that uh, you are not only edified, but hopefully it brings you comfort, uh, tranquility, and uh, it is of great value, a benefit to you. So let's take a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and I will open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this opportunity for Worship, Our service, Father, uh, comes to you by means of prayer and song, by focusing on the text of Scripture. We're thankful for your love for us and the provision of this opportunity. We pray, Father, that uh, those in our congregation, some who are uh, ill, some who are uh experiencing treatments, and also friends who have been through surgery. Father, we pray for your blessing upon them. We also ask for your blessing upon our service this morning. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our call to worship this morning is going to be in Psalm 30. And as you are turning to Psalm chapter 30, I want to say or give thanks to those who serve on our deacon board. Uh, We are truly blessed by these believers and these men who are part of our uh, leadership. We had a deacon's meeting yesterday, and it's always very efficient and I believe very effective. Uh, the, the board works harmoniously together, and um, as they work together uh, in accomplishing the uh, business of the church, it's evident to me that uh, their goal is to glorify the Lord. And I also not only want to thank them, Scott and David and Bill, Theron, Scott and Bill again, uh, I also want to thank you as a congregation for your support for this ministry, uh, not my ministry, but the ministry of this church, uh, this church family. This last year you have given uh, graciously and the church has been able to cover all the overhead, all the requirements that were needed. We've been able to support uh, other missions 
such as other ministries and missions, such as missionaries and uh, missions here in ministries here uh, in the United States. And so I'm thankful for your uh, continued support. Uh, it is uh, very much appreciated by me, and I know uh, other members of the congregation as well. So thank you for your continued support and uh, participation also in the ministry. All right, Psalm 30. Psalm 30 is a psalm about David, or written by David, but I think it's also about David. He is, he finds himself in um, many difficult situations, and this is one of those situations. Uh, and he's, he's pleading with the Lord for, uh, provision. Uh, as we go in Psalm 30, there's 12 verses here. I'll try not to, uh, linger too long in each one of these verses, but I believe that, uh, we must always understand, as we've discussed in 1 Corinthians 1, the passage has not been preserved, so we have some idea of what was happening in David's life. Yes, we do learn about what's happening in David's life, but this is also preserved for us. Uh, David's life uh, is almost a mirror for many of our lives. Now, David was uh, found himself as a warrior uh, in combat quite often, and many of us will never experience that. But it was a hardship. It was uh, a challenge. And we can even say that it was uh, uh, the adversities that he encountered were extreme. They were extreme to him. And periodically we find ourselves in situations that we believe are extreme. And some of them certainly are. Therefore... If we put ourselves in the situation that mirrors David's, we simply change the person and it is uh, ourselves as we uh, address the Lord. So let's begin in chapter 30, verse 1. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. Uh, this is David in uh, a difficult situation, probably discouraged, and God is lifting him. And this is God's function with us. Uh, we may at times be depressed, discouraged, um, but God is there. We are in his hands. And this metaphor works very nicely. We are in his hands. We are kept secure, and he lifts us. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes, my uh, adversaries, or we could say our ad adversities, rejoice over me. In other words, they're not going to overcome me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me. Healing here can be for a, an illness 
or it can be from a discouragement. We might say that we're refreshed or revived. Verse 3, O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. In other words, um, for David, it was saving his life. For us, it, it is lifting us from discouragement or a, a difficult situation. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit, to the grave. So he was protected. And I believe we can also say that we were encouraged if we're applying it to ourselves. Verse 4, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his or his saints, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Uh, we give thanks as we recall as we concentrate, as we think about who God is, his holy name. Verse 5, for his angry, for his anger is but for a moment. And we've been studying uh, God's character, uh, and this is a figure of speech. It's an anthropopathism, his anger. We might say his discipline uh, when we are not acting Properly, if we are uh, diso- uh, disobeying, for his discipline is but for a moment. Uh, it's for a moment, meaning it passes. It passes quickly, particularly when we confess our sins. It's gone. His favor is for life. In other words, he has restored us. We could also say his favor is for a lifetime. The discipline, the punishment, the righteous justment, uh, justice of God is but momentary, momentary, but his, but his favor, his grace is for a lifetime, his restoration of us. Weeping may endure for a night. It may stay. It may remain. It may last for a night. It's brief, but joy comes in the morning, uh, recovery. And I think, uh, the that's a figure of speech for night as compared to morning, uh, the darkness of the night and the brightness, the brightness of the day. Verse six. Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Uh, I think now in my prosperity, we could also insert there my assurance. I'm comforted by God uh, and I'm assured by what he is by his provision for us. I will never be moved. I will never be shaken, is another way to understand that. Verse 7, Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. And of course, David is not a mountain, but he's saying that his his own life shall not be, not be shaken. Uh, it will stand strong, not be moved. Your favor... Uh, your grace provision. You hid your face and I was troubled. In other words, I was dismayed. Verse 8, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. I cried for mercy, for relief. Verse 9, and this is, I think, an important point for us, uh, a good example. Here is uh, David uh, addressing the Lord and interacting with what David knows about the Lord. And he says, what profit, what benefit 
is uh, is there in my blood, in my death, when I go down to the pit, to the grave? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth, your faithfulness? So David is saying, uh, if I'm alive, I can continue to praise you. If I'm dead, what benefit is that? I, I love this uh, approach. Uh, you could say reasoning with God. And I think God appreciates this as well. You are addressing him. You are requesting the opportunity to continue to praise him, to extol him. Verse 10, hear, O Lord, and have mercy. Be gracious to me. Lord, be my helper. Eights are here. In other words, uh, deliver me. Uh, you are my helper. We often uh, describe God the Holy Spirit as our helper, but throughout the Bible, the word Eitzer is used of God the Father. He is our helper. Verse 11, you have turned from me, my mourning, into dancing. So this is uh, the principle that when we have fallen, when we have disobeyed, when we have had a problem, we confess it and we trust the Lord not only to forgive us, but to lift us up. And therefore, my mourning, my grief, we might say, my discouragement is turned to dancing, to joy. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. I think that's a figure of speech for David, certainly for us. And then verse 12, to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Uh, Verse 12 could easily be translated, Therefore, now my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. The word there, uh, glory, is kavod. It does mean glory. But our glory is in the Lord. And so I think this is uh, what David is saying. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Again, a wonderful psalm, a psalm that should be encouragement to us. It was an encouragement to David. He writes those 12 verses as more or less as a poem, and uh, he was discouraged. Um, And uh, the Lord lifts him up so that at the end he says, I will rejoice, I will be thankful to you forever. All right. Um, we're in 1st Corinthians. 1st Corinthians chapter 1. 1st Corinthians chapter 1. As always, I have much that I would like to say and uh, teach this morning, and we'll try to make sure we uh, cover this. But last week, we began uh, Paul's appeal, and uh, that was the, the translation of uh, the word that we had in uh, verse 13. So Paul appeals to the Corinthian church regarding one of their most glaring problems, and that was divisions within the church family. The Corinthian church had become fractured. The factions were opposing and fighting amongst themselves. A divided church is ineffective, and that is one of the Uh, thanksgivings that I have for 
for our church. Uh, if there are factions, I'm unaware of that. I don't believe there's any factions uh, on our uh, deacon board. I think they work harmonious, harmoniously, as I've reported. But if a church becomes fractured, it's ineffective, and that's certainly a problem. If we're fighting amongst ourselves, we're not serving the Lord. In verse 10, Paul appealed to them to work together harmoniously and not allow divisions to exist and grow in the church. I remarked that Paul's teaching on divisions would continue until the end of chapter 4. What does that tell us? That tells us that this was a significant problem within within the church. Paul's desire was to build harmony and mutual love within the congregation. Now, let's read uh, verses 10 through 13, and that will bring us back to um, our the context for us to, to move on in uh, verse 14. All right. We'll see that Paul, as, he, as we read through um, 13 through 17, that Paul's appeal turns to more of an admonishment. Uh, We can tell his uh, exasperation as he pursues. All right, Uh, verse, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. In other words, that they work together is another way of saying that. And that there be no divisions among you but that you will that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment uh i said a principle i gave you a principle f- uh, from this verse and i said we might think that we simply cannot work with someone and periodically we have have a problem with someone and we say well i just can't work with this individual but By means of spiritual growth, God the Holy Spirit working in us, we can produce the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. And as we understand that, we realize that we can work with each other because if each one of us are producing the fruit of the Spirit, then there is harmony. All of these qualities were foreign to the the Corinthian believers as they fought amongst themselves. As we grow spiritually, we can be joined together in unity for a higher purpose instead of selfish desires. In verse 11, for or because it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And the principle that I drew from this is what we must understand is that this is not unusual for church bodies. This occurs. Paul wrote the letter, then God the Holy Spirit inspired it and preserved it for all churches in the church age for us to read and be edified by it. The situation in Corinth is not meant to be 
understood in this letter not meant to be judgmental, but to be educational, truly cautionary for us. So as we read these verses, we're not, we are, our attention is drawn towards the Corinthians, but it should be uh, understood as an application for us. The body of Christ is not to be squabbling and fighting as other organizations might do. The body of Christ does not function harmoniously if there is not harmony among the believers. Verse 12, now I say this, or this is what I'm going to uh, address or what I mean. That each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. Or, very arrogantly, they might say, I am of Christ. And the principle that we have here is that we we align ourselves under our Savior and God's Word, not personalities. And we certainly do not use the name of Christ to promote ourselves, which the fourth statement, I believe, is an indication when they say, well, I'm of Christ. We need to be of Christ, but... It was being used inappropriately. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The working translation that I gave you here, because these are rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided among believers? No. Was Paul crucified on your behalf? No. Or in the name of Paul were you baptized? a ritual in the church, of course not, is the answer. And the principle that I gave you was that Paul's point is that the entire church should focus their attention on their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and work together to glorify Him in harmony. Today, there's always a few who are focused on their own particular, I called it their hobby horse, their pet project, or their pet topic. And they write it vigorously, getting almost nowhere, but yet causing uh, disruption in the congregation. Our focus is not to be preoccupation with ourselves, our own pet projects, but we are to be honoring, serving, and worshiping the Lord. Why? so that we can strengthen the body of Christ. And in doing so, we have an impact in our fallen world. So Paul is now, as we begin verse 14, we're going to see that there's more of an edge in God, in uh, Paul's words. I think he changes from an appeal to admonition. Paul introduces one of the reasons for the divisions and contentions in Corinth here in verse 14, and that is baptism. He actually introduced it in verse 13, but now in verse 14, he's going to address the problem directly. So verse 14, let me read through verses 14 through 17. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. And that was one of the uh, criticisms 
that he has heard. Verse 16. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any others. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Okay, this is uh, an important passage uh, because it addresses these uh, divisions, very often contentions between individuals and uh, groups within the church. And so uh, it's important for us uh, to understand this. Uh, today, I think there are probably many divisions within churches um, because there's a, this struggle that has entered the church from our politics, the United States as a whole is divided. And it's important for us not to allow the divisions uh, outside the church to cause divisions inside the church. All right. In verse 14, again, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized, uh, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. All right. Point one here. Paul says, I thank God. Paul's expression of gratitude toward God for what he did not do in Corinth uh, may be a little bit confusing. However, the Apostle Paul is approaching this almost from uh, a, a negative a, a negative point. One of the questions that I'd like to ask is, how would you like Paul to say this about you, that uh, he wished he had not baptized you? Well, it certainly is not complimentary. But this is Paul using sarcasm to reinforce a point he's making about factions. Paul had baptized in Corinth, and he did it willingly and happily. The the Corinthians had taken Paul's joy from him. Secondly, baptism. Baptism can be a controversy uh, very easily in churches. But baptism was an important ritual for the church and still is. Let me see if I can give us... I'm not going to take the time to go to... uh, point by point, categorically, to teach baptism, at least not today, maybe later. But baptism, this is baptism of believers. This is not the baptism of uh, of John the Baptist. It's not the baptism of Christ. This is the baptism of believers in the church age. And when we speak of baptism, we're speaking of being identified with Christ. And that's probably the critical phrase. We're being, crit- uh, being identified with Christ. Maybe uh, later I will ad- address some of these passages, but not today. So the baptism of believers being identified with Christ 
is immersion in water. And the immersion, and that's how we understand baptism, was a sign of death. It identifies the believer with Jesus Christ in his spiritual death, his physical death, and burial. So that's why we are immersed and water is simply a, a a tool, an instrument to help us to understand that we are being, we are in Christ and as we go into the water, we are dying with Christ, dying to sin. So we, uh, not only uh, did the Lord Jesus Christ pay for our sins on the cross, but he was buried to them in his physical death, and then he is going to be uh, raised. And his resurrection is a figure of us being raised to newness of life. He was raised to his resurrection body, to newness of life. No longer was he in his physical body. He was in his resurrection body his resurrection body. So the rising from the water identifies the believer with the resurrection of Christ, a new life in Christ. Water baptism represents a visual, a picture for us of what transpires in the baptism of God God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit uh, merges us or we would say uh, we become part of God's body. Uh, the body is the church. It is a picture that the believer is identified with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The real purpose of baptism was to take the very abstract picture of our position in Christ and visually illustrate it to the one who believes. Baptism, therefore, is a visual aid. Uh, and we'll see that it's also, as we go forward here, that it is also an opportunity to express our faith in Christ. So baptism here is uh, introduced in verse 14. Uh, three, none of you. Uh, this is an interesting phrase for the apostle. The Corinthians we're using the ritual of baptism inappropriately. It was designed to express a new believer's understanding of his new relationship with Christ. So it was designed to express a new believer's understanding of his new relationship with Christ. The problem with the Corinthians was that they were in a fractious fractious relationship in the body of Christ. And what we'll see here in a moment is that we cannot have a relationship with Christ if we are fighting and struggling within that body. So the Corinthians were using the ritual inappropriately. It was designed to express a new believer's understanding of his new life his new relationship with Christ. The Corinthians were using it to boast. 
and advance their standing in the church. Well, I was of this person. I was of this one. Paul wanted to remove the basis for the boasting and the division. To do so, he eliminates the basis for their boasting. Paul, we'll see, is not rejecting baptism. He's trying to almost back them away from baptism because they're not ready for it. For, Paul says that he baptized Crispus and Gaius. Thankfully, he adds that because that tells us that it's not baptism that's the problem. It's those who were baptized and are using it inappropriately. So Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth uh, when Paul and his team arrived in Corinth. And we find that in Acts 18.8. We'll turn to there in a moment. So Crispus believed uh, and was immediately expelled from the synagogue. He was instrumental, though, in the conversion of many other Christians. Uh, Gaius here may have been the person who hosted Paul and the entire church. And we find his name in Romans, Romans 16.23. But let's turn to Acts 18. Hold your thumb or finger or a marker in 1 Corinthians. And let's turn to Acts 18. Acts 18, verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul traveling from uh, Upper Greece. We would, uh, it was called Macedonia at the time. And he's traveling down to Athens. And then from Athens, he moves over to Achaia, which is where Corinth is, uh, the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So after these things, after he has departed Athens, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently become, had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Uh, that's an interesting uh, insert because the Jews were fighting amongst themselves, the uh, believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews. And it was causing a, uh, a, a an exceeding disturbance within Rome. So uh, Claudius expelled them all. And so here they are uh, in Corinth. And he came and Paul came to them to Aquila and Priscilla. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. They were leather workers, we might say. They weren't necessarily just making tent makers, but they worked with leather. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. His presentations to them were convincing. He was making progress. Verse 5. When Silas, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified, uh, was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now this may tell us that up to that point, 
Paul had been working in the Hebrew Scriptures about uh, the Deliverer, the Messiah. And it is now when Silas and Timothy join him that he introduces Jesus as the Messiah, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One is uh, the translation there. But when they opposed him and blasphemed him and, and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood, uh, your death be upon your own heads. I am clean. Shaking his garments is a figure of speech, meaning he wants to disassociate himself with them. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there, meaning the synagogue, and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So he was right there where he could continue to interact with the Jews. Verse 8, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his, with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing this, believed and were baptized. So here we have Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, uh, who was probably on the verge of believing when uh, Paul was ministering in the synagogue. Paul stays close by and he continues to encourage him and Crispus believes. Uh, this is a, uh, a wonderful, we would say, a, a wonderful breakthrough. Of course, uh, Crispus would have been expelled immediately from the uh, from the synagogue. All right, back to First Corinthians. We're in verse fourteen. So Paul now is I thank God, when he says I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crisp, Crispus and Gaius. Um, he is now I believe truly admonishing the Corinthians. He's not appealing to them, but he's using uh, rhetoric that is going to truly lift them by their collars, we might say. Also, he is not teaching about baptism, but baptism is one area that has brought the problem to light. What Paul was saying is this, I wish I had baptized none of you if this is the problem that it's going to cause. So he's not saying that baptism is a problem. He's saying, you're the problem, and I wish that I hadn't baptized you because you're using it as a uh, a club. He will say that he wished that he had stayed with the most elementary teaching and not progressed to baptism. So Paul is now admonishing the Corinthians. He's no longer simply appealing to them. The uh, principle here is do not cause problems within the body of Christ, the church family. Do not cause others to wish that they had not engaged with you in, con in conversation or tried to work with you. Do not cause other believers to regret associating with you. Your example is Jesus. His commandment was to love one another. And so this is the problem now in Corinth. They're at each other's throats, we might say. 
They are separating when they should be joining each other. And that, of course, is the problem. Let's move to verse 15. Verse 15 says, Lest anyone should say, in other words, let me pick up verse 15. Uh, It's a little smoother. Well, verse 14 says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. So first of all, here, apparently one of the arguments against the factions saying, I am of Paul. So one of the arguments here was that he baptized in his own name. Why? Well, to promote it, to promote himself. So Paul's ministry was always in Christ's name and in Christ's honor, not in Paul's honor, not in his promotion. So the criticism apparently was that Paul, uh, when he hears, I am of Paul, they're using it uh, as uh, a means of controversy. Secondly, the Corinthians were identifying with their spiritual mentors instead of Christ. In doing so, they were popularizing and and elevating the messenger, not the message. There's a message here, a message of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were elevating the messenger. None of the messengers would want to be placed in that position. And here Paul says that no one should use his name as a spiritual champion. And that's what they were doing. We're championing behind Paul. Others behind Apollos. Others behind Peter. Third, we have all certain pastors and teachers that we prefer to others. But we must be cautious that we do not place the human communicator in a place higher than the word. And I'm going to repeat this because I think this can easily happen. We all have certain pastors or teachers that we prefer to others. But we must be cautious that we do not place the human communicator in a place higher than the word. And this happens all the time. It happens when we cherish the words of the communicator, instead the words of God, which, of course, is the mind of Christ. That's where we go. We go to the mind of Christ, the word of God. Yes, a gift of communication is designed to clearly and effectively teach, but it's the word of God that they teach, and that is what is special, not their eloquence. And I think that we we can very easily get off track because of that. A very, I think, an excellent example of this is someone who was not considered eloquent. And that was J. Vernon McGee. Uh, J. Mo- uh, Vernon McGee was a remarkable teacher and pastor. But what was his effort? Uh, his effort was, uh, his goal was to teach the word of God. And he is the one that instituted uh, teaching the Bible through the Bible, as he's uh, as he described it, uh, in a five-year period. 
<clears throat> and he would teach through the Bible in five years, and then again in five years, and then again in five years, and he kept teaching the Word of God. He wasn't trying to be eloquent. He wasn't trying to have a particular uh, population that supported him. He was simply teaching the Word of God. And when you would listen to him, you'd recognize that he was uh, probably a, uh, from the West Texas area, but while he wasn't eloquent, he taught the Word of God. And that has to be our focus. So cherish the Word of God, not the words of a communicator. Fourth, sometimes we think that we can only approach the Word of God through a special teacher. If that is true, then where does God the Holy Spirit fit in your spiritual growth? Again, we must not place a human in the place of God the Holy Spirit or diminish God the Holy Spirit's role in our spiritual lives. The special ministry of God the Holy Spirit is to edify us and our growth. And it's only through God the Holy Spirit that that occurs. As we read the Word of God, we will steadily learn more about God's Word. And that is the result of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Yes, pastors and teachers have a critical role in teaching the Word of God, but they do not replace the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we spend our time in the Word of God, and the greatest asset we have is God the Holy Spirit, not a communicator. Yes, they have a place. I mean, I am one. But the greatest instrument for spiritual growth is through God the Holy Spirit, teaching the Word of God to us. Point five, as you read the Word of God, and I certainly encourage you to read the Word of God, there are many who start reading the Word of God and they find it difficult. Yes, at times it can be difficult, but I believe it's like almost um, many other uh, texts that we read the first time. We don't understand it the first time. I think I, I used an example of a recipe very often you read the recipe or you read maybe instructions on the back of a um, a computer or something that's, that you need to use. You read it the first time, you, well, it's, it's kind of thick. So you read it again, you read it again, and you read it again, and s- soon you're beginning to understand it. Uh, that's the same way with God the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Word of God. The more you read it, the more you understand it. The more you immerse yourself in it, the more it means to you. So, as you read the Word of God, God the Holy Spirit helps you not only to understand it, but then also to apply it. And uh, no one knows you better than God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit knows your situation in detail, and he knows precisely how to apply it in your life. Uh, A pastor can try to apply and very often do that. That's why I give principles. But I don't know that that is the best application in your life. God the Holy Spirit does. So we should use him. So the principle is we don't grow spiritually by being being a personality groupie. And that's very often what we happen, what will happen. We don't grow spiritually by being a personality grouping, groupie. 
We grow by allowing God the Holy Spirit to edify us in the Word of God and to to encourage us in our spiritual lives. And that's God's God the Holy Spirit's responsibility. Uh, When the Lord Jesus Christ departed, he said, I will send you, I will request of the Father to send you a helper. God the Holy Spirit is our helper. We must use him. He's effective. Yes, there's going to be certain men who seem to present the word more clearly or effectively than others. But do not make your spiritual life depend on them. They are a conduit to the truth, not the truth. They teach the truth, but the truth is the word of God. Verse 16. Yes, Paul says, I also baptized, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, or maybe a better word there is otherwise, I do not know whether I baptized any other. In other words, Paul is saying here, it wasn't me. Yes, I baptized some, but others could do the same thing. So point one under 16, Paul did not perform baptisms, but appears, uh, excuse me, Paul did perform baptisms, but it appears not many. And at this point, Paul says that he's thankful that he didn't, baptize very many. Not that baptism was pointless. It was commanded by Christ and it was certainly practiced by the early church, which makes it, along with God's, uh, along with the communion service, an ordinance of the church. But it is what an ordinance means and teaches, not who performs it. I think we all understand that. It's not the pastor or someone else that is uh, conducting the uh, the communion service. It's the elements. So the the ritual of baptism has a meaning, and we should be focused on it, not on the person who baptized them. As a matter of fact, if you forget the person who baptized you, uh, that's just fine. Just remember what the ceremony meant. Secondly, uh, the household of Stephanus. I always appreciate it when these names are mentioned. Stephanus and his family were one of Paul's first converts in Achaia, the region of Corinth. Paul praised him and his household for the devotion to the ministry and for their service to it. So, uh, Stephanus and his family assisted Paul's ministry in a very special way. And it just so happens that Paul uh, baptized them. Uh, point three, um, you've often heard me say this, but I, I'm thrilled by the mention of names of those who helped Paul and his ministry team, or Peter, or uh, John, or uh, other authors. So I'm always thrilled by the mention of the names of those who helped Paul and his ministry team. In this case, it was not just one person, but it was in the entire family. These were not simply those who attended the church, but those who were valuable to Paul's work. Also, notice that Paul remembers these as fellow workers. 
they contributed to his ministry, and he gives mention of them by name. These names should be special encouragement to us. God the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to include these names, which makes them eternally remembered and rewarded. Um, This always reminds me, uh, and I've mentioned this in the past, when someone's name is mentioned in the Word of God, um, we know that at that time they weren't given a reward, a medal. And that always reminds me of the the older uh, English form of uh, recognition. There was a, a time in... Uh, the English military, the British military, when they didn't give medals to officers because uh, the British military believed that officers were to uh, perform above and beyond the call of duty. That was just their call. But the way they were rewarded was to be uh, mentioned in dispatches. They didn't have uh, phones. They didn't have iPhones, whatever it is, texts. So the the command would report what has happened in the actions, the recent actions, and they called those dispatches. They would send a dispatch back to headquarters. And for special recognition, names would be mentioned. And to be mentioned in dispatches was... Uh, a high honor. And I think that that's what we have here. Uh, God the Holy Spirit is mentioning these names in dispatches. Point four, Paul was not saying that baptism was not necessary. Uh, Paul was not saying they should not have baptized someone or that baptism is not necessary. Paul was saying that the Corinthians had either forgotten the purpose of baptism or had allowed their occupation with themselves to misinterpret it. So these people are uh, occupied with themselves. I'm proud because I'm in this group. So Paul's not saying that baptism was not necessary. And then point five, let me give you a little background on Paul and why he may have only baptized a few. First of all, from what we know about Paul, He was not capable of strenuous or difficult physical activities. We're told that he was small in stature, probably by this time also debilitated by having been stoned when he was in in Galatia. And we also believe that he had poor eyesight. Why? Because he used so many scribes to write his epistles. More than likely, his assistants performed the baptisms. Secondly, in Corinth, Paul may have conducted some baptisms of the early converts prior to Silas and Timothy arriving. And then Silas and Timothy, uh, as his disciples or his working with him, they would perform the baptisms. And that's a reason why Paul probably did limited amount of baptisms because it would have been a very challenging performance for him. 
All right. Let me conclude this paragraph, uh, verse 17. Verse 17 says, for, and that, by the way, is uh, a causal, so we could say because. Because Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Some people have asked, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Uh, was he sent by Christ? Was he sent by God? Well, I think the reason that uh, Paul uses Christ here is because he's speaking of the body of Christ. Christ was the anointed one, and he is the head of the body of Christ. He appointed the apostles to service. And Paul was called, uh, Paul himself was called by recovering from blindness in Damascus. So Paul says, Christ didn't send me, and it was Christ that dispatched him, we could say. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ who instructed Paul in uh, the, in the Assyrian, excuse me, the Syrian or the Nabataean wilderness after his conversion. You may remember we studied that in Acts, that uh, Paul was instructed um, for we don't know how long uh, in the Arabian wilderness. Secondly, the phrase did not send me to baptize. And this is a critical point. Paul was not saying that baptism was not important. He was saying that the most important part of his mission was to preach the gospel. The Corinthians were distorting baptism for their own personal acclaim. Because of what Paul goes, because of that, Paul goes to the extreme of saying, okay, you knuckleheads, I should not have baptized you because you're going to abuse it. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Again, this does not mean that baptism was not important. It's important. Like prayer is important. Scripture reading is important. Offerings and communion. But if it's to be distorted, it would be better to be omitted. And that's Paul's point here. Third, Paul's main mission was to proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry on earth, his redemptive work on the cross, and the coming Messiah. Baptism would naturally follow, but was secondary in importance. So the most critical part of the gospel message is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then spiritual growth follows. A testimony follows. Point four, not with wisdom of words. This is an idiom. It's an idiom that refers to clever speech, or we could say eloquent discourse. Paul addressed the Corinthians' tendency to place undue emphasis on human wisdom. You may remember that, uh, and we'll see this in, I think, our next section, Paul is going to be critical of the Corinthians because they were fascinated by philosophers. And so 
Paul is telling them that um, they should not follow someone who is eloquent. They should follow the word of God, the message. The immature Corinthians were so impressed by clever oratory and learned debate that many of them ignored the relatively simple message of the cross. And that's Paul's message here. Our fifth point, the cross of Christ. This phrase phrase refers to the atoning work of Christ on the cross, his sacrificial death. Paul, Paul says, and he is emphasizing the cross of Christ. That's the crux of the gospel. Paul will develop on the cross, will develop more the cross in the next section. And so finally here, point six, should not be made, should be made of no effect. The literal meaning here of this no effect is to empty something. So what Paul is saying is that the Corinthians were emptying the true importance of the gospel. In other words, Paul says that the commission he received was plainly to present the message of the cross, not to impress people with rhetoric. The factions in Corinth were centered around personalities, presentations, and pleasing oratory. Those who incline to those those who are inclined to those methods empty the gospel message of its effectiveness and the the uh, efficacy of the message loses its power. And so that's the problem that we have here. The principle in closing, our purpose in evangelism and subsequent teaching of doctrine is not to impress with our smooth, presentations, or catchy techniques, but a simple explanation of who Christ is and his finished work on the cross. All right, we went over a little bit, but this is important. Paul's uh, emphasis to the Corinthians is that their factions were truly destroying the efficacy of Christ going to the cross. They were believers, no doubt about that. Paul knew that. But after salvation, they became uh, disoriented to the, the spiritual life. And they were, once again, destroying the body of Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Apostle Paul. We're thankful for the reporting of what was happening in Corinth. We're not thankful for the divisions, but we're thankful that we see a church that is an example to us. And we pray, Father, that our focus would be on Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, the body of Christ, and that we would function harmoniously so that we can have an impact in the world around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.